All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he enable us to understand what is being taught today and that God the Holy Spirit can use it to reinforce our confidence in our salvation and in our spiritual life. Father, we're grateful for the revelation of your word. Parts of it are difficult to understand. That is not new. Peter even said that Paul's writings were difficult to understand. But we know that you make these things clear to us and that they are for our edification, that we might be strong in our Lord and understanding our purpose and mission as those who are in him, those who are the church, those who are distinctively set apart for a purpose in this dispensation. And, Father, we pray that as we study today and we work through and what the Scripture teaches about your will and your plan and your purpose, that we might indeed come to a greater understanding of how these passages that seem somewhat difficult for us really do fit together and are quite understandable. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're still in the opening section of this rather lengthy sentence and statement of praise to God then in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. And the focus that I want to have is sort of establishing an, a foundational understanding when we start talking about the will of God in relation to salvation and these ideas that are often confusing to people related to uh, God's choice and the statements related to his will as we see at the end of uh, 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 verse 5 in the opening praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose, or as I pointed out, just as he appointed us in him, that is the corporate body, us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having, because he has preordained us to adoption as sons. That's the corporate purpose for our salvation is every believer in Christ being adopted as an adult son by Jesus Christ to himself. According, or as I corrected it last time to him, that is God the Father, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's the phrase we are going to spend a little time working on because of the way this has been misunderstood, the way it has been abused and uh, distorted, 
And then we'll get in a couple of weeks to the closing doxology, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. Again, another reference to being in Christ, that corporate unity. When referring to this verse in verse 5 and also verse 9, John Calvin in his Institutes makes some pretty profound uh, statements. Let me skip to here. Let me go here. That he considered nothing outside of himself with which to be concerned in the making of his decree. So he's looking at this phrase that God purposed in himself according to the good pleasure of his will. He says he considered nothing outside of himself. In other words, it's all internal, and God is not considering anything outside of himself. He will say that includes foreknowledge, as I've been pointing out, which is direct contradiction to First uh, Peter one two and Romans eight twenty nine, that he considered nothing outside himself with which to be concerned in the making of his decree. Surely the grace of God deserves alone to be proclaimed in our election only if it is freely given. Now it will not be freely given if God, in choosing His own, considers what the works of each shall be. There are several errors that we should spot in this statement. First of all, one is that. Uh, not agreeing with that definition of God's will as a wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling, all-inclusive decree that determines every decision that every person makes. If we don't agree with that, that does not mean that that we are offering a work salvation. Now, that is true that within the Arminian camp, that is often what is expressed. It also gets into issues, which we'll discuss later on, related to faith, that within the Calvinistic system, that saving faith is a gift of God. It is a categorically different kind of faith than everyday faith. When you came in here and you sat in your chair and you had faith that it wouldn't collapse under you. You got up this morning and you looked at your clock and you had faith that it was accurate. You went out and started your car and had faith that the battery would cause the engine to turn over. And so we exercise faith in many, many different areas. We believe certain things are true. Sometimes we believe wrongly. Sometimes we believe rightly. But faith is faith. Saving faith is different from other kinds of faith, not in its essence, not in what it is as an expression of trust or the affirmation that something is true, but it is saving because that which is affirmed is the gospel, the work of Christ. It is the work of Christ that has merit. It is the righteousness of Christ that we possess, and that is the basis for the declaration of our righteousness, that we are justified not because of something we have done, for faith is not not meritorious. It is the object of faith that is that is meritorious. So that addresses the last part of the statement. And uh, there are other issues here related to, as we see, related to the issue of foreknowledge. As Calvin explains this, he references 
Ephesians, three verses here in Ephesians 1, and they all tie together and, uh, and will connect together in the coming weeks. So we will be, I've been wrestling with how to teach this because it weaves in and out. And so this and next week are basics, and then we'll build on that. As Calvin argued that human works cannot be the basis or cause or ground of our salvation, he's right. But he adds to that, neither can it be God's foreknowledge. And that's just a contradiction to Scripture. So what we see here are these three verses, and we need to see them and their connection. And so we're going to begin with the verse we're in, Ephesians 1, 5. Having preordained us, preordination is not determination of ultimate destiny, justification, salvation, phase one. It is what our mission is and what our identity is after salvation in terms of our spiritual life. So that is, as we studied last time, adoption as sons, a new identity as adult sons. Now, this might have really resonated among a lot of the congregation in Ephesus who were either slaves or former slaves. They are addressed later on in chapter 5, that this idea that they are given these privileges of a huiothesia would just be a profound statement to them that doesn't really carry that kind of connotation for us. But this adoption is, and here we have the first of several statements on the the standard of God's choice. It says here, it is according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, it's unfortunate because some people like to think that everything in the Bible ought to be very, very simple and easy to grasp. Uh, I think it was in the Old Testament, that God addressed this to Israel and said, my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. God is higher than us. I heard somebody one time said, well, you know, if, if, uh, if, this, if, if God were really communicating to us, then I'd be able to understand everything he said. And that's, unfortunately, that's an unexamined and often assumed opinion by people. And if God is who he says he is in the Bible, then we ought to expect that a lot of what he communicates to us is going to be uh, perhaps over our heads, and it's going to take time and thought and discipline to really come to understand uh, what it says. And so when we look at this phrase, good pleasure, or the satisfaction of his, of his will, we're going to have to look at those two words and understand what they mean because they're intertwined in many other verses with other words related to his will and his uh, and and also these concepts of God appointing us to our destiny. So, but here I just want to point out it presents a standard. The grammar is consistent in all these uh, things I'm going to point out. It uses the Greek preposition kata, which means according to a standard. So we know that what that means is when we see this kind of construction with kata followed by an accusative noun, 
that it means the, the writer is stating what the standard, what the criteria is for making a decision, what, what's involved in it. And he doesn't state all of it at one time, obviously, because in this topic there are several different statements related to, that are expressed the same way according to the, according to the standard. So here it's according to the uh, good pleasure of his will. In Ephesians 1.9, it's according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So that adds another dimension. It adds that dimension of God having a purpose or a plan. Now, what's interesting in a very, very broad sense as we try to work our way through this, these difficult concepts is that there are broadly two views, and this is a very broad general statement, in the interpretation of these passages. One is that they are talking about God's individual selection of each person who will spend eternity in heaven and his non-selection of those passed over who will spend eternity in condemnation. In its most, I think, harsh form, that's double predestination. There are those in Calvinistic theology and heritage who believe that that God predestined some to heaven and others to the lake of fire. That's related to this concept of his, his purpose. But the other view is, is that all of this language is related to understanding God's plan and purpose, not individual selection for salvation, but his plan and purpose for church age believers. And so that's what we see here. Now, I've underlined the word purpose here. It's the verb pratithemi, and the noun shows up in the next verse, and the noun is prothesis. I had a hard time with autocorrect on this because it always wanted to change that to prosthesis. <laughs> so if you see that, that's, that's not my fault. <laughs> that's just autocorrect. Now, Ephesians 1.11 is the next verse. In him, now this gets into the next section where we're talking about Christ. In him, that is, again, in this corporate identity of our position in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, that ties things back to that word we looked at last time, uh, which relates to adoption. And adopt, the purpose of adoption was to get, provide an heir for the family. When the uh, head of the Roman family did not have an heir or a son that he thought would be responsible, he could adopt someone as an heir. So Roman and also Greek adoption focused on providing an heir, and that and that meant that someone is brought in legally into the family and given this inheritance. We talked about this, that there are really two categories of inheritance. There's those, those uh, the term for every believer, we're all heirs of God, and then for those who grow and mature, there's a second category, uh, we are joint heirs with Christ. So here's a reference to an inheritance, an allusion back to the concept of adoption. Uh, and then it's translated in the New King James being predestined, and it should be understood as a causal participle because we, that is, we who are in him, were preordained. Just as I pointed out, a pastor is ordained. That doesn't mean he's elected or predestined. It's that he's given a mission, and it, that mission is recognized. That's what... 
Uh, and so preordination is that this mission is established ahead of time, and it's according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So here we have this phrase using uh, the noun form of protithemi to talk about the uh, the purpose. God has a purpose. That relates to his plan. His plan is uh, not something that is arbitrary, but something that is in a bit of an anthropopathic, well thought out and organized. So in... Um, then, uh, so we see in Ephesians 1.5, it's according to the good pleasure of his will. But in 1 Peter 1.2, it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the word foreknowledge is a word that simply means to know beforehand. So it is clearly in relation to God's omniscience and the fact that he knows all of the knowable. In Calvinism, he only knows what he predetermines. So foreknowledge is, is dismissed, uh, just as Calvin did in that quote. But he's, you know, that's characteristic of, of Calvinistic theology. And it ignores what we've studied in 1 Peter 1-2. Now, now this foreknowledge of God, what is it? Uh, knowledgeable of. It is knowledgeable about who will respond positively to the gospel and those who will reject the gospel. Now, the reason we know we can say that the word elect here should be translated as choice ones, that's very important. It is not emphasizing God's selection of who will be in heaven and who will be in hell, but it is a choice by means of the sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctification refers to being set apart to God's service. So it is by this choice is by means of the Holy Spirit and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, that is the application of his death. So those are the means by which a person becomes choice. Now, I keep alluding to this, don't forget it. Matthew 22, Jesus tells the parable of the uh, of the wedding feast. And so you have the father of the groom, and he's throwing the wedding feast party, and he sends out those with invitations to call the people to the wedding feast. But they reject the invitation. That's the exercise of will in that passage. They reject the invitation. The only choice that is going on in the passage is they choose not to respond. And so he then sends out his messengers to everyone to invite everyone to the wedding feast. And then when it shifts to the wedding feast, everybody there has been given a garment, except there's one person there that doesn't have the right garment. And the garment is a picture of not of their works, but of the righteousness that has righteousness of Christ that has been given to them. And so then they are declared to be choice, not because of their works, but because they possess the righteousness of Christ. This is seen in Isaiah 61.10, For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is an ongoing metaphor that we find throughout the Scripture. So we come to these passages and we see that we are, that, that this work of God, this plan of God is according to his knowledge beforehand. It's co- according to the sa- satisfaction related to his purpose in uh, Ephesians 1 5 and 1 9. 
and it is according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So it involves his omniscience. It involves God's volition as he chooses that which is the, that plan which will give him the most glory. So this then, as we look at Ephesians 1.5, we see that the term good pleasure is the Greek word uh, eudikia, which means approval. He is in approval or satisfaction of this plan as a, as a righteous plan, and it's according to his will. And this introduces the word thelema, which is the first of several important words which we have to understand in this context. Now, as we do this, I want to outline the key words we have to understand. Uh, first one that we run into is eudikia which, as I just stated, means approval or satisfaction primarily. Uh, God is pleased with his plan. The second word that shows up in the text is thelema. This is one of a couple of different words translated will or desire in the New Testament, and it is seen in Ephesians 1.5 and 1.11. And then we have the word uh, the two words here actually that relate the, to, to I talked to the verb and the noun, pratithemi and prothesis, which have to do with a purpose, an intention that God has. It expresses that there is a goal uh, that is part of God's uh, plan. And then the last word that is not in Ephesians but is in Second Peter 3.9 is the word bulimai. And this also is, expresses the idea of will or desire or, or want. Now, I'm going to reorder these and study these in, um, in this order. First of all, bulimai. This, I think, is important to go to Second Peter 3.9. It's a passage that every Calvinist struggles with because of what it states. So we'll start there. Then we'll look at and its significance for understanding this plan of God, is especially in Romans 9, that's foundational. And then we'll get back to uh, Eutychia and Thelema and a couple of other words. So another thing that we need to understand is three key terms that are used to understand this concept of the will of God that have been developed sort of as categories by theologians over the ages. The first is God's revealed will. God's revealed will is what we have in the Scripture. In the Scripture, God tells us and gives us commands. We have all kinds of commands. In the Old Testament, there were commands related to the Ten Commandments, uh, the commandments to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. We have commands in the New Testament, pray without ceasing, and all things give thanks. We have a variety of commands. We know that we should not do certain things, and we should do certain things, okay? That's the revealed will of God. But Christians do not automatically do the revealed will of God. Believers in the Old Testament certainly do not automatically do the revealed will of God. We have volition. We can choose to obey or disobey. If, if we are locked into obedience, then why in the world do we have all of these commands? We would just automatically do what God says to do. So God's revealed will is that which is revealed in Scripture, commanded and directed. It is not something that we say internally, well, I think God wants me to do X. 
that is not what we mean by revealed will. It is the objective revealed will of God in the Bible. Then we have God's permissive will. God's permissive will. It is that though God has decreed that we should do certain things, as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is God's decreed or revealed will. Yet he gave them uh, the freedom to obey or disobey. He permitted them to violate his decreed will. This is what allows for human responsibility and freedom of will. It is a limited freedom of will. It is not an unlimited autonomy because, number three, God still can override our will. Uh, You cannot just go do whatever it is you wish to do because God can block you. Uh, And I can think of several times in my own life when I had a desire to go do one thing and God blocked it. And one summer I had been counseling at Campanile for, I think, three or four summers, and I thought, you know, I'm just not sure I really want to deal with a bunch of adolescents again or go backpacking all summer or canoeing. I think I want to go on a graduate trip and study uh, World War II history in Germany with one of my professors. And so I signed up for the trip. I was the first one to sign up for the trip, and I just couldn't wait. The deadline was something like March 20th, and I informed Gordon Whitelock at Camp Nile that I would not be coming that summer. By March 20th, 24th, he hadn't found no one who could lead any of the trip camps. And by March 23rd, not one person other than myself had signed up for that trip. This is a Jonah moment. So I called the professor and I said, I really need to to be at, uh, at doing something else this summer, and I need to be involved in this camp ministry, and I have no one, uh, there's no one to take my place, so I'm not going to go. The next day, 12 people signed up to go on the trip. <laughs> That's called God's overruling will. You know, I had one desire, God had another desire, and he wasn't going to allow me to do what I wanted to do. So there's God's overruling will in history. Now, this is important because when we look at the use of these words and the word that is used in our passage, uh, thelema and its its verb cognate, is that these are used to describe both God's revealed will and his decreed will. I mean, mean, his revealed will and his permissive will. And uh, they're used both ways, and yet there is a tendency to want to take all of these words and ram them into a theological framework. And this is the largest problem that we have with systematic theologies and systematic theologians is they set up a very tight uh, theological structure, but it is not always based on really solid exegesis. And so we always have to start with what is called biblical theology, which doesn't mean that it's biblical in its source. It's a certain way of doing theology. You start with exegesis, and you end up with your systematic theology. And this is a problem with when you get into Calvinism, you have a very, very rigid, structured, systematic system of theology, and it interprets certain words the same way every time. It just ram crams and jams it's uh, these these theological meanings into those words whenever whenever they see it and it does doesn't fit and so whenever they see words like elect 
choice, eclege or uh, protithemi, they always default to salvation. This is always about phase one justification. And so we need to look at a passage. We talked about Bulamai and Second Peter three nine as the foundation that Second Peter three nine states the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that is a foundational step. God does not desire anyone to perish. So if that is true, why would God decree that some, apart from consideration of their volition, and that is how hyper-Calvinism and Dordian Calvinism expresses it, uh, apart from their volition, God determines whether they will be saved or not. So this just directly contradicts Second Peter 3.9. So we have to hold that in as a foundation. It clearly states God does not desire anyone to perish. So why do people perish? They perish because of their decision. But God does not want anyone to perish, and again and again he will provide opportunities for people to know the truth, either through the nonverbal general revelation of creation or through verbal, uh, the verbal expression of, of the gospel uh, through many different ways. We've known people who've heard the gospel one time and believed. We've known people who've heard the gospel 50 times and have not believed. Uh, it's all about how they uh, respond, and it is their choice. So in order to understand this, going to the next word, which was uh, uh, prothesis, which is the word for purpose, I want to go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. This is, again, one of those benchmark chapters that Calvinists go to in order to express their idea of, of God's uh, selective will for salvation. Uh, the central passage we're going to look at, I'm going to talk about context in a minute, starts in verse 11. For the children not yet being born, and the children there is referring to Esau and Jacob, the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, that's prothesis, the purpose of God according to election. Now, that's a new King James. It's better translated in the New American Standard as the choice of God because people read election and they automatically default to thinking God's selecting them for eternal salvation. But it's a choice. A choice for what? A choice for what purpose? And the default position that comes out of Calvinism is that this is a choice for eternal salvation. And we have to look at the, what the context says. Is this about eternal salvation or is this about God's purpose in relation to his plan of history and his plan for Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Verse 13 says, as it is written, so Paul goes back to source material in Genesis 23, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, a lot of people have problems with that. They say, well, God doesn't hate anybody. This is a figure of speech, and it simply means the expression here, when you use these in, as opposites, it is a statement of I have chosen one and rejected another. 
So you might go out to eat today and you say, well, I have loved my vegetables and hated my dessert. <laughs> what you're saying is I have chosen to eat my, my vegetables and not to eat a dessert. That would be the idiom. And so we can't read into these idioms a literal meaning that God actually hated Esau because there's nothing in Scripture that would support that. Verse 14 reads, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, and here's a quote out of Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now you can see that if you're coming from this with a mindset that is oriented towards determinism, that you'd say, well, God is just going to save who he will, and he's going to condemn who he will. Isn't that what that verse means? Well, not if you look at the context of that verse back in Exodus 33. So we're going to have to take a little time to just fly over this and pick up the main ideas in, in Romans 9 and then look back to these illustrations that Paul gives related to Esau and Jacob, uh, related to Moses, and also related to Pharaoh. So let's go back to verse 1 and just read through this and talk our way through this. Paul talks. Paul begins in verse 9, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Okay, this is just his transition. How did he end the previous section? He ends the previous section with a profound statement of our eternal security. He says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor power nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, in chapter 6 through 8, he's been talking about the spiritual life, and it all builds to this conclusion that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But he hears an objection, an objection from a... Uh, a, a Jewish person who says, but wait a minute, based on what you said, God's rejected Israel. So because of our sin, we're no longer in the love of God. And so he's going to, uh, he's going to interrupt his flow of argument in chapters 9 through 11 to show that no, God has not permanently uh, rejected Israel. God still has a love for Israel and a plan and a purpose for Israel, and so he's going to start establishing that. So this tells us right away in terms of that context that it's not going to be talking about justification. It's going to be talking about sanctification. It's coming out of a sanctification section, and these issues that are going to be quoted all relate more towards uh, a spiritual life issue than they do a getting saved issue. It is not about justification, especially when we get to the illustration uh, with Pharaoh. So we know that even though there were those that uh, reject Jews, that many Jews rejected Jesus, there were many that did not, especially at this early stage. Uh, Paul did not reject Jesus. The disciples did not reject P Jesus. Peter did not reject Jesus as Messiah. The 3,000 on the day of Pentecost did not reject Jesus as Messiah. Many of them were probably already Old Testament saints. And in, on the second day after Pentecost, the 5,000 men and probably their, all of their families did not reject uh, uh, Jesus either. 
And so Paul goes on to say, For I could wish that I myself were cursed for Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the first, to the flesh. And then he gets to the main point. They're Israelites, according to the flesh, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. He doesn't say it, 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 it pertained to them past tense. This belongs to them. God is not replacing Israel with the church. The covenants, the glory, the service of God, the promises uh, belong to them. So uh, it, it's dealing with the Israelites as a whole, as God's call of the nation for a whole, and the adoption of the nation as a whole. It is a corporate concept. The giving of the law, as we've studied many times, was given to the nation of the whole, the promises of the covenants. All of this related to those who were in Israel. And that's why he can say the covenants apply to all the Jews, saved or unsaved. And in a few verses down, he is going to say that, but, but not all Israel is Israel. Why? Because some are saved and some are not, but to all, even the unsaved, belong the covenants and the promises because that's given to them corporately. So this is important because it shows that God's choice or election for Israel is a corporate election, and that is analogous several places in Scripture to the election of the church, which is a corporate election, not talking about an individual uh, an individual election. So... We go to the next verse in verse six, but um, it is not the word of God. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Here I have that on the screen. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. So there's a f- Israel according to the flesh, and Israel that's regenerate, that is according to the flesh, but also regenerate. That's true Israel. And then Paul says, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abram. You know, some of them are not, they're not saved just because they're the seed of Abram. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Uh, but in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And what he's talking about here is that this is all about the seed promise and the calling of Abraham as the one through whom the Messiah would come and that it would come not through Ishmael, uh, but through his son Isaac. And then in verse 8, he explains this, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So the children of the promise are those who have followed Abraham in believing God and having it accounted to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. And then in verse 9, uh, he gives an illustration from uh, Abraham and Sarah, and he says, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So that promise and the seed are interconnected. There's a lot I could say about that, but for the sake of time I won't. And then verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah, Rebekah is the wife of Isaac, so we're going down to the next generation. Uh, Rebekah had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, and then we have the introduction of the children, the children of Rebekah. This is Esau and Jacob, for the children are not yet born. So while they are still in the womb, while they are still in the womb, uh, their destiny is set forth. 
They had not yet been born or they hadn't done any good or evil, so it's not based on anything they have done, but simply God's purpose. That And this purpose relates to the Abrahamic covenant and the promise. It's not a purpose related to their individual salvation. In fact, I'm convinced Esau was saved. I'm convinced Ishmael was saved. But they were not the children of promise. They were not the ones through whom the Abrahamic covenant would go. And so in verse 12 we read, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have, uh, I have hated. God chose Jacob and blessed him. But we're also told in Genesis that God also richly blessed Esau, but not with the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. So this selection then, we ask, is this a selection that is individual? Is he talking about them as individuals? Or is he talking about this as, as talking about them as representatives of a, of an entity? And for that, we have to go to Genesis 25, 22, and 23. In Genesis 25, we're told the children struggle together within Rebecca, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? She probably, and then she went to inquire of the Lord. She's praying, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your room. So he's not talking about them as individuals. He's not talking about their individual destiny or their individual salvation. He's talking about his plan and purpose in history through the descendants of Esau on the one hand and Jacob on the other. He said, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So the older is Esau. He came out first, Jacob right behind him, grabbing his heel, which is why he's called the heel grabber. Um, And so it is uh, the younger Jacob who would be served by the older who is Esau. Now, the next time we in the New Testament we see Esau talked about, some people think this has to do with Esau's salvation, but the, read it carefully. It doesn't say anything about salvation. It is an illustration warning against reacting to God in bitterness and anger. So it's looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. So the warning is don't react in bitterness and resentment because that you, if you become bitter, that can spread and infect other people. And so this, and it can be a springboard to many other sins. This is what happened to Esau. When did it happen to Esau? Did it happen early? Did it happen late? Or did it characterize his whole life? It happened early. It didn't characterize his own life. When you get to the end, when Jacob uh, returns with his wives and he's coming back with all of his uh, flocks and herds, he is met by Esau, and Esau welcomes him. He said, they don't have any hard feelings. There's no resentment. There's no bitterness there. Uh, Jacob wants to repay um, you know, make up for what he had done in deceiving uh, Jacob to give him the blessing. And so he's willing to give a lot of his sheep and flocks to, to Esau. And Esau says, I don't need any of that. I, look how God's blessed me. I have, I, I'm rich with, with, with abundance. God has richly blessed me. And there's no sign of bitterness whatsoever. So this is just an illustration coming from the, the incident when, when Esau realizes that Jacob was deceived and gave the birthright to Jacob instead of to himself. 
So uh, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, fornicator here is not talking about literal sexual immorality. We're talking about unfaithfulness. He's unfaithful to God. And the illustration is that he became a common. Profane is opposite to holy. Profane is opposite to being set apart to God. And so he becomes that because he, he doesn't value his birthright as the firstborn. He's willing to sell it for a mess of pottage, for red lentil soup, because he's so hungry. And so he has a, a lack of respect for what God has given him and for what his position is. Uh, and that's how he is being unfaithful and profane. And so in verse 17 of Hebrews 12, we read, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, after he got over it, he said, Why can't he repent? He said, Why can't I get some blessing? Why can't I get it now? He was rejected. Why? For he found, it says, For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. It wasn't God's plan for him to receive the inheritance. And that's not salvation. That's God's plan for the purpose for Israel. And then we see that the quote, uh, Esau I loved, I mean, uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, comes out of Malachi chapter 1. Uh, this is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so here in Malachi, which comes after the uh, return to the land when the Israelites are once again in have uh, deteriorated into paganism and rejection of God and are uh, uh, spiritually in spiritual rebellion against God. God is going to tell them that they are modeling themselves at basically after after Esau, and Malachi will remind them of their position of privilege as descendants uh, of Jacob. Uh, but you see, Jacob, uh, when you talk about the older serving the younger, Esau never served Jacob. In fact, we're told in, in Scripture that Jacob served Esau the red lentil soup, and he bowed down to him when he returned, but he never served him. Its descendants did. So what this is talking about is God's plan for the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, is different from God's plan for, for Israel. And then when we get to the last quote, we'll come back, talk about this a little more next time. I just want to hit it now to tie it together, is that this is after the uh, uh, golden calf incident in Exodus, and uh, God has threatened to uh, lower the boom on Israel and make a new nation out of Moses, and Moses pleads, pleads with God, and in the course of that, he is talking about uh, God manifesting himself to Moses. That's the context, okay? I'm not going to go back and read it because we're out of time. But God's response to Moses is, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'm not, you're not going to see me directly, but I will pass all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord, that is the character of the Lord before you, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Not one thing in the context is talking about personal salvation. It's talking about God's revelation of himself to Moses. To some I will reveal myself more. I will have compassion. To others, 
Not so much. But that's my decision according to my plan. So what we see is that when Romans 9 is talking about the purpose of God, it's not talking about a purpose related to personal salvation, personal eternal destiny. It is talking about God's plan and purpose, God's plan and purpose for Israel in that context, and then we can apply that to God's plan and purpose for the church when we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1. Now, next time we'll come back, we'll develop out some of these other words, but we have to understand them in order to understand that the, this purpose. In Ephesians 3.11, it talks about the fact that this plan is according to the eternal purpose, which was accomplished in Christ Jesus. So God's purpose, again, there is stated in a corporate way. It is who we are in Christ. It is God's purpose for the church. These passages are not talking about how to get to heaven by virtue of God's choice. They're talking about those who have trusted in Christ and are in Christ have been blessed because of their position in Christ. We've been appointed to a specific destiny, and we are ordained to a certain plan and purpose that God has for us. And so that sets us, that gives us that context. And we're going to come back because Paul keeps weaving this terminology in over the next uh, six verses or so. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning to be reminded that you have a plan and a purpose and that you in your sovereignty have decreed that you will give us a measure of freedom primarily to determine our eternal destiny and secondly what we will do with our position in Christ and that you are not overriding our personal volition in those two critical areas. And so, Father, we recognize it is your desire for all to be saved and that if there's anyone listening to this message now or in the future, that they will understand the gospel, that Christ died for their sins. He died, he paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world, that uh, we might have eternal life simply by trusting in him and that it's not based on how good we are because it's based on the righteousness of Christ given to us at salvation. And we pray that all who hear this would either be confirmed in their salvation or that they would uh, desire to be saved and trust in Christ. And that, Father, for those who are believers, that we may be encouraged and strengthened in this wonderful, incredible plan you have for all church-age believers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.